electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Nine companies are set to make their public debut this week, roughly a billion in proceeds. So is the IPO market back? One of our guests says yes, but if so, why was today's listing just delayed? We'll discuss that and whether bigger names are finally going to enter the pipeline. Plus, investor Kyle Bass bet big against subprime mortgages before the 2008 financial crisis. Now he's betting against office space. He's here to talk about that in a week where office names are actually outperforming. And if you're looking to add AI to your portfolio, there are two international plays you may not have heard of but are worth buying, one of our guests says. He will reveal which ones. Maybe you can guess some. But let's start with the market check first. I'm seeing some green over there, Don. Not just some green. Near session highs right now, Kelly. So the exact opposite of the color of that outfit that you have around right now. But anyways, you talk a little bit about the movements in the market. You can see near session highs up 38 points for the S&P, 43.67 the last trade there. Uh, At the highs, certainly just about 41 points to the up side up about seven at the lows so a generally positive day right now pushing back towards that 4400 mark for the s&p the dow industrial is up about one half of one percent 33,890 up 175 points the nasdaq composite outperforming after underperforming yesterday up one and a quarter percent 167 points higher 13,503 a couple of stocks you want to keep a close eye on by far the worst performing stock in the s&p 500 and by far certainly in the dow jones industrial average Walgreens Boots Alliance down about 9% right now. The pharmacy benefits, retail pharmacy giant, comes out with a mixed earnings report. Earnings miss, quarterly earnings miss. Revenues come in better, but they lowered their full-year profit guidance due in part to less consumer spending and less spending on things like COVID vaccines and COVID tests and other treatments and that sort of thing. So Walgreens, a big laggard in the Dow and the S&P 500 down 9%. And one of the places to keep a close eye on, we're going to frame the discussion around commercial real estate with one stock in particular, that's Vornado, up about 4.5% right now. This is a real estate investment trust that owns a lot of office space and retail properties. New York Metro, almost specifically, some other places out there. But they come out and say they're going to invest about $1.2 billion to renovate and update two big office buildings they have right near Penn Station in Manhattan. If that were to happen, it's a big bet on a return to office, at least in some capacity, betting that people, you know, maybe want to actually get back to the office at some point. Vornado, though, I'm going to put it up there. Over the last four years, down 73 percent, you can see this is the pandemic right here in the spring of 2020. It's almost like a barometer, if you will, Kelly, of that return to office trade and what's happened post-pandemic with work dynamics. So as we discuss the future of commercial real estate, Vornado is certainly one of those Real estate investment trust to watch. I'll send things back over to you. I love the story. We'll circle back to it. Dom Banks. The office space has been an especially hard hit subsector in commercial real estate, something that legendary investor Seth Klarman told CNBC today that he thinks makes for some fertile hunting ground. We think real estate is an area that is full of so many fundamental challenges, but the fundamental challenges have caused um, urgent selling. You can see pullback in lending. You can see vacancies in office, 
troubles in retail for years and years. And so that doesn't automatically makes it interest, make it interesting, but it may mean that as other people abandon it, as other people face urgent pressure, there may be opportunities to buy, to inject capital, to make some rescue loans, and we hover around looking for opportunity. But my next guest is not so enthusiastic. He was recently quoted saying that office space is an asset class that needs to be redone. And by redone, he more or less means demolished. Joining me now is Kyle Bass, Heyman Capital Management's founder and CIO. Kyle, it's great to have you back. Welcome. Kelly, great, great to be here. I, I think that uh, the, the, the hype of this of this discussion uh, is, a, is a bit off. Uh, I literally said that in, in kind of a, a long two-hour interview with Bloomberg's editorial crew, uh, where I think downtown office space, uh, and I've referred to very much B&C buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how B&C buildings revive, but you know, even A buildings, you showed Vernado being down you know, 70, 72% over call it the last four years. I agree with Seth, and as you probably know, uh, in San Francisco, 350 California Street just traded for you know, $60 uh, a square foot, uh, which, you know, you can't, you can't even come close to building a building for that. But the bet is from here that at some point in time, you actually get uh, millennials to move back into the office. Um, I know it's a tough slog, but, you know, there's BNC office buildings in downtown areas that have been decimated uh, by uh, crime and, and, and again, vacancies. I think, I think this is a decade-long problem. The A buildings are going to do fine. So how would you play it, you know, if you wanted to be really opportunistic? Would you look at, for instance, Vornado? I mean, it's interesting what they're doing because they're picking a big renovation, spending a billion dollars cash, not debt, all the rest of it, right next to Penn Station, as if to say the only way there might be hope is by getting people on mass transit, you know, really close to their destination and maybe luring them back in that way? Because this is way more about the commute, especially with congestion pricing about to happen than it is about anything else. Yeah, and uh, look, this this goes even further into bad governance. You look at the cities uh, that have the worst uh, office vacancy rates, and those are also the cities that have some of the highest crime rates in the downtown area. So, you know, this pendulum that's swinging is a secular change in work, um, you know, primarily driven by COVID. Uh, and and then people's uh, proclivities to want to stay home and convince their employers they should stay home. And then you also have governance and bad governance in many of these cities. And to your point, mass transit, uh, you know, I wouldn't ride mass transit in many of these cities today. I think it's too dangerous. And I think they're going to have to have governance be fixed. You're going to have to have uh, um, these downtown areas rejuvenated. And some of these cities is going to be a, a tough go for, for decades sure. to come. But that said, you know, I know you and Seth, I mean, these. so do you buy Vornado at 17, for instance, and say, you know what, maybe they can get to 30, maybe they can get to 40, maybe this is, you know, you want to buy the stock before you start to see the turnaround to some extent, or maybe you believe they're in, uh, exposed to areas that will kind of come out of this. Uh, maybe there's other ways to do it. Maybe especially someone like yourself can just maybe buy a, a property directly, right? Or be part of some, some kind of private credit deal. What's the play? Yeah, I think the play, given where debt costs are, and, and, and look, Seth is, Seth is a, a much better value investor than I, and he's, and he's an icon <laughs> in the space. And yeah. as you know, in his book, Margin of Safety, mm-hmm. he likes to create margins of safety. And that, that, that example I talked about, 350 California, the buyer uh, you know, paid $60 million for that asset, Asset was worth, you know, 300 million plus just a couple of years ago, uh, and the, the buyer paid all cash for it, and 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 has the uh, timeline to wait it out. So when I'm thinking about how to 
how to play a, an asset class like office, uh, I think you want to buy individual properties and I think you want to pay all cash for them. And you also need to have a, a decade long or more uh, time horizon. Uh, and the whole idea is if you're buying it at 20, 25 percent of replacement cost at some point in time in the future, things will get back to some sense of what, what's deemed to be normal. Uh, and that building will be worth a lot more than $60 a foot, right? Uh, if, it, if it ends up being worth $120 a foot, it's still a third of what it once was worth, but it's, that's a double from here. So right. I, think it's, I think taking debt out of the equation with debt costs where they are today is key to, to playing something uh, like a, a value purchase here. Great point. And for the investor as well to think about how not maybe tapping that debt is going to change the dynamics of who's available and you know, how to get those returns over time. All right, let's put that to the side then and pivot talk geopolitics for a second while we have you, because we must. Um, I don't know if the events of this weekend um, are investable to you or if they, you know, kind of point one way or the other to how you expect the rest of the year to play out. But what do you think should be the biggest takeaway uh, from the, let's call it coup, attempted coup, whatever, that that happened in Russia over the weekend? Yeah, um, you know, so many many people have given their opinions here. I think that the the instability that we're seeing uh, is something where, uh, you know, basically nothing is true. No one really knows what the truth is here. Although you have the defense minister and Prigozhin being natural enemies, uh, and now you have Prigozhin moving into Belarus. You know, what worries me is, is Lukashenko has been Putin's lapdog for a long, long period of time. And you've got, you've got uh, Wagner Group and Prigozhin moving to, to Belarus at the same time that Russia's moving tactical nukes to Belarus sometime first two weeks of July. Uh, my key takeaway is I wonder why uh, Russia's putting their, call it front fighting force uh, that they can disclaim beneficial ownership of uh, with a group of nuclear weapons. I mean, uh, my key takeaway is things became more unstable this weekend. Hmm. Even if things kind of uh, settle back in, I, I don't like where the global chess pieces are ending up. Yeah, and as Marco Papich told us yesterday, there is no geopolitical premium anywhere to be found. So if we're going to build that in, it's going to be a headwind. So final question as we're starting to see, we've obviously been hawkish on China for a long time, and now the business community is actually responding and sort of in, a, in, in agreement with that analysis in cases we're starting to see segmentation of China business away from other international or U.S. operating units. What are the implications of that? Is this the, the right move for companies to make? Is it going to make the world a more dangerous place? Is it simply, you know, a protective gambit that doesn't have a whole lot of implications? Um, what does it say to you? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're a pragmatist, you, uh, you know, you like to use the word hawk. I like to use the word realist. <laughs> uh, if, if you see China acting responsibly on the global stage, if, if they're not raiding uh, the PRC offices of U.S. businesses, if they're not, you know, we've been asking for a, a, a crisis response line to be put in between our two militaries, because as you probably heard, there are actual discussions talk, uh, you know, being bandied about today about a hot war between the U.S. and China to the extent that she follows through with his words and, and invades uh, uh, Taiwan, which he's been talking about since 2017. Uh, if you're a corporate uh, investor, or if you're a fiduciary, in, uh, a fiduciary uh, in the U.S. or, or Europe, and you and you have money invested in China, you've just seen what a madman can do with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, uh, and you have an, an a unlimited partnership between Xi and Putin. You know, it doesn't take too much logic to figure out that you need to really be thinking about underwriting your risk uh, in China because it's Russia today, and it can be China tomorrow. 
and you might be able to sweep a couple hundred million dollars of your money that you had invested in Russia under the under the rug because you have 50, 60 billion dollars of investments. You won't be able to sweep four or five, six billion under the rug if, in fact, she's belligerence becomes real. And, you know, I, I, I fear that we're kind of uh, dancing uh, past this uh, this graveyard or, you know, whistling while, while Rome burns here. It's obvious if you just put all the facts up on a whiteboard that China is not our friend, that they are they are out for, call it uh, global primacy at any cost, and they're aligning themselves with uh, the bad guys of the world. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. Uh, it just takes a pragmatist to realize that if you're a corporation doing business in China, mm. you better start rethinking about your supply chain, your revenues, and your company and your 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 uh, corporate employees' uh, um, um, livelihoods. Because yeah. as you know, China's detaining uh, many of those uh, expats in the three companies that that it's raided, uh, and it just put into place new laws that allow it. Uh, to detain and nationalize uh, assets in the event of what they call extraordinary circumstances, which include war. And that's what they that's what they wrote into their new laws. So, again, the writing's all on the wall. I think it, people really better start paying attention before it's too late. Maybe bearish would be a safe term. How about that? <laughs> Kyle, I'd thank you. I'd say realist. Realist. Dr. Realist, uh, as we used to call Nouriel Roubini. Kyle, thank you very, very much for your time today, delving into all of these topics. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Kyle Bass from Heyman Capital. Meantime, the yield on that five-year Treasury note is just over 4% today, exactly where we were back at the start of the year. They just went up for auction top of the hour. Rick Santelli has the results from the CME. Hi, Rick. Yes. You know, that's very good. I'm impressed, Kelly. Yeah, two years were at 443 when we closed last year. Fives were at 4% and tens were at 388. Interesting how it's all lining up, isn't it? We had 43 billion five-year notes, which is uh, one part of the $120 billion package the Treasury's putting forth for auction this three-day period. And today's five-year came through at 4.019, so just a whisker shy of 4.02%. The problem was is that the when-issued market was trading much closer to 401. So it tailed a bit. And when you tail, no matter how good all the metrics are, that's an important factor. So C-plus is the grade, but the metrics were very solid. And that really is the heart of this discussion. Solid metrics yesterday in a super-duper strong two-year note auction. Today, a little sloppy pricing, but solid metrics could turn out by all the bidders, direct and indirect. So what does it mean? It means many of these participants are coming in, even though they lost money overnight on owning two-year, because they believe central banks either have gone too far or are very close to the end in the U.S. especially. And that dynamic is going to continue to play out as we monitor tomorrow's seven-year note auction. Kelly, back to you. Thank you very much. 4.034, five-year paper. Rick, thanks. After an ice-cold 2022, the IPO market is slowly starting to thaw. Shares of Kava trading above the $42 price where they opened nearly two weeks ago, the first major IPO we've had lately. And that strong price action seems to be ushering in more offerings. Nine of them are slated for this week, with over a billion in proceeds expected, after just 90 all of last year, according to DealLogic. Now, that includes Gen Restaurant Group, which was set to make its debut today, but is now being pushed to tomorrow, according to Bob Bassani. Kodiak Gas, Fidelis Insurance, and Savers Value Village are all coming later this week. So is the freeze over, and could bigger names be on the way? Let's ask Dan Primack. He's Axios Business Editor. He's here alongside our very own Bob Bassani. Welcome to both of you. Bob, first give us the scoop, and does 
Does the fact that we're focusing on Gen Restaurant Group, which is relatively small, just tell you how desperate we still are for some big time listings? Yes. Uh, and remember, this is a very small deal, essentially $33 million. Uh, that, you know, anything below $100 million barely gets people's attention. But we had an IPO drought that's gone on for 18 months with a few exceptions. Kava Group came with a bang last week. And $42 is a pretty amazing number when you consider it priced at 22. So what happened there, it's hard to believe that uh, the book runners fundamentally mispriced the deal. There was just an enormous amount of demand for IPOs and new stock in general, in addition to Kava being a, a brand name. So I think that's indicative of uh, a demand out there for IPOs. And indicative of demand, Dan, but indicative of supply would be to kind of see some of the big uh, big banner names listing. All of these this week are relatively small. Uh, yeah, actually, I mean, some of them are big, if not bigger than Kava in terms of size. They're just not terribly well known. They're not consumer brands. Again, you know, big insurer. There is kind of this thrift store operator, Kodiak, which is a gas and oil company. What's important to me about each of them, you know, Bob talked about that $100 million threshold. These are all offerings that are designed to raise significantly more than $100 million for companies that would all be valued at more than a billion, two of those three at more than two. This is an interesting week because if all three of those or even two of three of those do well, price within range, then we should, then, then I think you've got a lot more well-known names that are going to come to market. Yeah. And, and obviously we're all like curious about the stripes and the Instacarts and, you know, any B2B SaaS players or that would, you know, kind of have your attention. Anything uh, coming this way? I mean, over the summer, how much uh, longer is the window really? I mean, the window to me, it's really kind of Labor Day is really the mark, right? You might see some things come over the summer, at least file over the summer. But really, you're gonna, very few companies are probably going to want to try to price into the end of July, into early August when, when people are on vacation. They're probably going to aim for that post-Labor Day market. You know, you may mention them. Instacart is certainly a really big one. People talk about Databricks. People talk about Turo, the kind of B2B, kind of the Airbnb for cars. And then there's obviously Reddit, which everyone was expecting this year, but it's having kind of some internal issues that nothing to do with IPO. Maybe, Bob, the fact that we've got a Lordstown bankruptcy isn't doing a lot to help sentiment and enthusiasm for new listings right now. Well, I, I would slightly take issue with Dan's point about nothing happens in July and August. This is an extraordinarily unusual situation. We have had a backlog for a year and a half. He mentioned, you know, Reddit, Instacart, Panera Bread, Stripe, Impossible Foods, potentially, Fanatic, StubHope, maybe Klarna, Arm uh, is out there. And you may see, I think, if, look, what, what does it take to get to get an IPO going? You need a strong market, which we've had, S&P at a new high recently. You need stable interest rates. That's a little bit iffy. We want to keep that more stable. And I think that that uh, may or may not happen in the next couple of weeks. And then you have have decent pricing, and certainly Kava provided at least some encouragement along that front. My question here is, uh, if not now, when? And now, the, the cynical thing is to say, well, these are uh, these are specialty companies that are going this weekend. It's true, but they're three hundred to four hundred billion dollar deals. That's that's not trivial. That's how an IPO market opens with small not smaller, but uh, niche players coming out. And then you can be cynical and say, all right, well, where's the, where's the big unicorns? Where's, where's the stripes and where's the reddits? Uh, they can afford to stay quiet and private a little longer. But I think the question is there. If not now, when? You really want to wait till September, October, if the conditions really are right, those three conditions I mentioned? So and I think there might be a chance you'd get surprised in July and August. Who knows? And I shouldn't downplay uh, Gen Restaurant Group, Dan, because I'm a huge fan of Korean barbecue. So, you know, there, that may be, you know, one of the niche opportunities in this market. And there seem to be a bunch of them in the restaurant space right now. 
Yeah, and, and it's worth noting, you know, as Bob said at the beginning, normally we wouldn't even notice Jen, right? Something that's we're trying to raise 30 some odd million dollars. That's not the sort of thing that would probably ever make CNBC or, or, or I'd write about at Axios. There's been a bunch of those kind of called these small cap companies that have been coming out uh, recently, and there's been kind of a steady flow. So the, the real question right now is, will the big ones pop? And, and if Jen does well, is that kind of give people just a little bit more confidence coming off of Kava? Yeah, absolutely. Gentlemen, thanks. Dan Primack and our very own Bob Pisani. Thank you. Still ahead, some under-the-radar AI plays, including this name, which has co-quadrupled in the past year. If you think you know what it is, tweet me at KellyCNBC. We will reveal it coming up. But first, we'll speak with the head of one of the nation's largest electric utilities, whose shares are up almost 9% this year, but still below their 2017 highs. The CEO of Edison International is here next to talk about how they're working to protect the power grid and keep the lights on despite heat waves sweeping the country. And as we head to break, here's a look at your markets, where the Dow's up 193 points, half a percent. The S&P's up 1% today. Both the Nasdaq and the Russell are up nearly 1.5%. Go figure. Ten-year yield, 376. We're back after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow's gain is now more than 200 points. We're sitting at session highs with the S&P back up 43 points to 43.72 and the Nasdaq up 1.5%. Here are some of the movers this hour as we check across the markets to see what's driving the price action. Carnival rebounding from its worst day since November after that near-term guidance came in more conservative than expected. Stock's up 8% today, still up 40% in June and tracking for its best month in over two years. Also, Generac leading the S&P on pace for its best month since February of 2021. This one, extreme weather spreading across the country. Remember, the CEO told us on Friday, shares are still down 50% from that COVID high, but they're having a nice comeback up 9% today. And let's get to some show and tell where we show you the chart and tell the story. And Delta, man, maybe the only airline that's not hated at the moment, given all the delays and everything going on across the country, having its investor day, hitting a 14-month high after raising their second quarter guidance and forecasting full-year earnings at the high end of the range. Apparently, they doubled or rose by 50 percent their free cash flow forecast. The stock is still 28 percent off its pre-pandemic high. It's up five and a half percent today. But here's what CEO Ed Bastian told our Philip Bow this morning when asked about that. Our stock was six dollars a share in 2009. We got to 60 dollars a share in 2019, right before the pandemic hit, a tenfold increase. So we've done it before. We're going to do it even better this time because of the strength of the, the balance sheet that we're focused on, the quality of the brand, the investments we're making digital. That's all going to make sure that we have a more durable outcome for the future. 
from 6 to 60 for Delta. Meantime, Texas dealing with an extreme heat wave. Temps expected to top 100 degrees in Houston and Dallas all week long. It's putting a lot of pressure on the power grid. Several big public utilities operate in Texas. Most are down in the last week. Constellation, Sempra, Excel, Entergy, 8 to 19 percent declines. They're also well off their 52-week highs. My next guest runs one of the nation's largest electric utilities, which is California-based. He's had to deal with many of the same issues Texas power companies are now facing. Pedro Pizarro is the president and CEO of Edison International, parent company of Southern California Edison. Uh, it's great to have you here, Pedro. Welcome. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Great to be here. And there's nothing you can really do about Texas, right? Because they have their own grid. Yeah, they, they do. Uh, they have some connections to the rest of the country, but they're thin. But I think what they're experiencing is what we're all experiencing to some extent. We're seeing the impacts of climate change and, you know, extreme weather, whether it's heat, whether it's cold, whether it's wildfires that we've had in the West. And so we're working to harden the grid across the nation. Are the price hikes over? I mean, I remember the stories, you know, up 35 percent. We saw nat gas prices the last couple of years. People were just, you know, reeling. And is that all behind us now? Well, you know, you have to watch markets, right? So we'll see what markets do. And clearly, we had distortions from lots of global events as well. But I think the key here is making sure that we continue to have a diverse set of resources over the long run. And in California, we've had a big focus on using renewables and storage to complement, you know, gas resources. At the end of the day, I think we need a balanced set of resources that will be cleaner and more efficient, but importantly for customers, reliable and affordable. Let's talk uh, wildfires, which is probably as much of a risk as geopolitical events, all the rest of it. Not just the direct hit, obviously. I think you guys still have maybe some exposures from past wildfires. There's smoke in the air over Chicago today. I mean, we in New York felt it from those fires in Canada. They seem to be more prevalent. I don't know if we're advancing at all and figuring out how to, how to prevent and fight them. But what do we need to do in order to stop this from becoming you know, a, a chronic problem? Well, two, two things. There's climate change adaptation. And I think the hardening that we've done of our system to deal with the wildfire risk is one example of that. There's climate change mitigation because the reality is that we are seeing these impacts. You know, now we're seeing them in Canada. We've had them in California. Australia has dealt with this for a while. And so we need to continue making progress to uh, clean up the power supply as quickly as we can in order to help do our part towards uh, 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 mitigating the impacts of climate change. But if you look at what we've done in California over the last five years, we have hardened our grid. We've redesigned the airplane while flying it. And today, an outside group that does work for insurance companies estimates that our actions, replacing bare wire with insulated wire, adding monitoring equipment, doing more tree trimming, et cetera, um, that has all reduced the risk of our infrastructure starting a catastrophic fire by 75 to 80%. Again, wow. just in the last five a 75 to 80% reduction from things like hardening the wires, brush clearing. I mean, when will be the test? Is this summer going to be the test of whether that strategy is paying off? Well, we've already had a test. Uh, if you look at 2019, 20, and 21, those three years had, frankly, awful, uh, risky fire weather in California. Hmm. And there were fires, there were ignitions, but the reality is that we did not see any catastrophic fires in that time and with conditions that were just as bad as that's in 2017 and 2018 when we did. So we're seeing this working. We're seeing that we have not had a single ignition yet on circuits that where we've changed the wire to this covered conductor, you know, insulated wire. We have not seen a single ignition in ignition on those circuits yet from the causes that that wire was meant to mitigate. Wow. So this is working and we have more work to do. Got to tell the insurance companies. I mean, if you're right, maybe I'd feel a little bit more comfortable writing some of these policies. 
Let me just ask you kind of as a final question about the, the composition of where your power comes from. How clean is it? How clean is, does it need to be? And who's funding all the investments, the state, the federal government? So today we're about 45 percent carbon free, uh, about 35 percent plus of that is renewables. Uh, we are headed to 60 percent renewables by 2030 and 100 percent renewables or carbon free at the retail level by 2045. Who's funding that? Uh, for the most part, our customers, right? Because these costs get uh, passed through rates. However, the federal government has been helping, and the IRA, I think, is going to be a, have a big impact in reducing costs for our customers. We, uh, all those tax credits get passed through uh, our rates to the customer bottom line, so it will help to uh, defer, uh, defray the costs of the clean energy transition. Yeah. Finally, comment on... You know, many of the utilities are struggling with kind of these proactive power cuts or power. I know you guys have had some shareholder suits. I think it is other other issues in the next two, three, five years. Are we going to be relying more on those preemptive kind of efforts? Um, Just what's that strategy going to look like? What should consumers be prepared for in terms of the ask? I know my father in law lives, you know, just north of Los Angeles and experiences these rolling blackouts all the time. So actually, we're using those less and less and less. And if you take a look, just over the last few years, we share with our investors uh, the percentage of the risk reduction that's come from these public safety power shutoffs. And it's uh, well less than half what it used to be. It will continue to decrease. I'll be honest with you, Kelly, that's a tool we will want to retain in the toolbox for the most extreme conditions. But today, already, uh, the, the impact on our customers is a small fraction of what it was five years ago. Yeah, that's great. I remember one Thanksgiving, we said, you know, how, how's it going out there? He said, well, I can't use my microwave today, but, you know. <laughs> I remember that one, too. And I gotta tell you, it was awful fire risk then, so it was painful to do to our customers. We don't like turning the power off, but we know that we save lives by yeah. having taken that measure. Pedro Pizarro, thank you for joining us. It's really good to check in, and we hope that you're right about uh, positive developments in all of these areas. Thank you, Kelly. Pedro Pizarro is the CEO of Edison International. Coming up, Nuveen CIO Sarah Malik joins us with her second half playbook, including a pair of big banks she's bullish on, despite forecasting two more rate hikes from the Fed this year. The exchange is back after this with the Dow at session highs. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Seema Modi with your CNBC News update. Federal regulators declined to issue a recall of some Hyundai and Kia vehicles despite a nationwide wave of social media link thefts. In a letter seen by NBC News, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration said the trend did not meet its criteria for a national recall. Vehicles are susceptible because they lack engine immobilizers. State officials say the thefts have caused at least eight deaths. New federal protections for pregnant and recently postpartum workers take effect today, but the specifics are not clear just yet. The new law affects accommodation requirements for businesses with at least 15 employees. Federal guidance is expected to come out later this year to detail exactly what it entails, but examples could include more flexible working hours, longer breaks, and time off for medical appointments. 
Ryan Seacrest is about to add Wheel of Fortune host to his resume. He is set to replace Pat Sajak, who announced his retirement earlier this month after four decades on the job. Seacrest signed a multi-year contract to start hosting in 2024, and he will also serve as a consulting producer. That, according to Sony Pictures. Exciting. Kelly, back Seema, to you. Seema, this is not going down well in my family WhatsApp. No, not yet. I don't know. He's so Not bubbly. You need to be a little sassy with that position, don't you think? He can learn. I think he can <laughs> He has proven to be quite flexible. I will agree to that. Seema Modi. Coming up, under the radar AI names. One that is neck and neck with NVIDIA this year. They're both up 180% since Jan 1. But our mystery stock is still beating it 2 to 1% over the past year. It's up 300% since last summer. I've had one guess. I don't know. if It might, it might be it, but keep them coming. At Kelly CNBC, we'll reveal it next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Baidu up 3% today after the company said the latest iteration of their Ernie chatbot outperformed ChatGPT in some key areas. And my next guest is seeing opportunities in overseas AI plays, including Opera Limited, OPRA. That was our mystery chart. Twitter user 10x Trades got it right. It's a Norwegian tech company integrating AI into its web browser solutions. How do you know about these? Their shares are up 180% so far this year, rivaling NVIDIA. But all these plays do come with a warning. I'm joined by Kevin Mon, Henyon and Walsh Asset Management here on set with me. Kevin, it's great to see you again, first of all. You as well, Kelly. What made you kind of go this route, looking for AI names that weren't already bid up, but then this one's done as well as NVIDIA? Yeah, Kelly, I think it's fair to say that AI is the new hot dot on Wall Street. But much like that dot-com craze back in the 2000s, investors should be very leery and do their own due diligence before jumping into the investment warbers of this emerging yet transformative technology. So within our own Smart Trust Technology Revolution Trust, Two names met our selection criteria that are embracing AI for their own unique solutions. What are the selection criteria, which I assume is weeding out kind of anything super expensive or, or maybe not? Yeah, we look at valuations. We look at cash on their balance sheet, low levels of debt, and a history of actually growing their earnings. A lot of these transformative early stage technology don't have revenues. Mm -hmm. We want those that actually have revenues, are profitable, and have sustainability. So the two names that we like, Nice Limited and Opera Limited, as you just mentioned earlier, both ADRs, so they're international names, allowing you to give some diversification to your U.S. stock portfolio. So let's talk about Opera first. We already mentioned it. Um, tell me again, a Norwegian browser, what do they do? Yeah, so they're a smaller cap name, about 1.7 in market cap. They actually provide a native web browser focused on AI. It's called Aria. How appropriate for a company named Opera to sure. actually have a product name, could Aria. It, could we use it in the U.S., or is this a, a, a niche international well, product? Well, right now it's a niche international product. They do pay an attractive dividend yield already. They have an attractive balance sheet, and we believe that this is the very same type of capabilities that Baidu is developing with their Ernie Bot solution. What about, for instance, you know, when Chrome starts to integrate this, or obviously what, what Microsoft and Bing have done? Most people have said, I want to play AI through those names because if something goes wrong, if the market isn't what it is, you know, they, they can't disintermediate themselves. So we'll just stick with these, you know, big platform companies. The only thing I would say, Kelly, is there's going to be more than one winner in yeah. the AI race. If I'm going to put my chips in one area right now, certainly Microsoft has got a head start in everybody. Tons of cash on their balance sheet. Their investment, their multi-billion dollar investment in ChatGPT, it's just one example of their commitment to the AI space. But don't forget about IBM either. True. They have a yield of over 5%. They just announced an acquisition earlier this week. $4.6 billion of cash on hand of Aptio. 
they continue to transform themselves into a provider of AI solutions. Stephanie as well. linked like that name too. I liked that deal. And, and IBM has really uh, been a turnaround play lately. The other international name you brought us is Nice, headquartered in Israel, thirteen billion dollar company. What's the AI play here? So they they're in using AI in their own unique solutions around financial crime and compliance solutions. So very niche, of course, but dedicated to AI. Strong balance sheet, and yet another example of a company that's using AI to actually grow their revenues, and we think compete and provide sustainability. Do you hedge FX when you invest internationally so that you don't have the the risk of you know strengthening dollar as a headwind, or do you does that just kind of multiply the risk factor? It's a great question. So these are both American depository risks, so oh. you actually strip out the, right, the currency right. related risk associated with them. And I have to suggest to all the investors watching right now, for those that are concerned that U.S. stocks are a little rich right here, maybe start diversifying overseas and take advantage of a weak dollar. What else, when you look towards the back half of the year, are you kind of chasing the the areas that have performed well so far, or are you fading them, being a little bit more defensive? I think you have to be very worried of what the Fed does next. I do believe if they were to stop right here, raise rates no more, they could engineer a relatively soft landing. If they do commit to two more rate hikes by the end of this year, well, then this could be a little bit of a deeper recession where you'd want to play a little bit more defensive. What about those who say, come on, another quarter point, half point? What does that really matter? I would take the flip side of that and say, why even raise by another quarter point? We haven't even seen what the 500 basis points in rate hikes have done to the economy just yet. And I think they've done enough. Fair enough. Kevin, great to have you here today. My President pleasure, and CIO of Henyon and Walsh Asset Management. Coming up, AI hopes powering that the uh, CNBC index attracts those magnificent seven stocks higher. It's up about 24% just in the second quarter. And while AI has been good for stocks, we'll hear from an executive at Google's DeepMind about the impact it could actually have on the 2024 election. Could that be a risk? We'll dive into it next. Before break, though, let's check out shares of UBS. The bank reportedly preparing to cut more than half of the Credit Suisse workforce. The UBS takeover officially closed just about two weeks ago. And get this, the shares are only up about one and a half percent. We're back after this. Welcome back. The upcoming election will be the first where artificial intelligence could play a big factor. And experts are already sounding alarms for the misinformation that people can generate with these new tools. Our very own Deirdre Bosa joins us now with more on this from the Aspen Ideas Festival, Deirdre, where this has been a hot topic. It has certainly been a hot topic, and I moderated a panel on the ethics of AI. I asked my speakers, all of whom are deeply involved in this space, if they were more worried, less worried, or the same worried about the impact of generative AI on elections than they were a few years ago. Have a listen. I'm the same worried. I mean, you, you know, the, 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 the mid-journey stuff looks clunky. You know, you've, the ads you're seeing, there was a Canadian example. The person had three arms, you know, that was in the ad, in the advertisement. <laughs> like a bad so, Photoshop. <laughs> yeah, you know, the Balasianga Pope. The reason why I'm a little less worried is because two years ago, we weren't having these conversations at the scale at which we're having them today. And in one sense, that's a good thing because people will be a little more weary of what they, a little leery of what you see and, and whether it's true or not true. On the other hand, that's pretty sad that we have to question everything that we see. And I don't know what the answer is in the end. It comes back to a lot of what you recommended in terms of watermarking, which is still a technology that's not fully developed. Next year is a particularly intense election cycle um, in many places. So I think that's actually, uh, there's... I, I, I think that's probably a little bit more heightened next year because of that. 
So, Kelly, that was sort of optimistic and encouraging. They weren't any more worried about the same worried. Of course, there's risks on the horizon. But it wasn't the same throughout the Aspen Ideas Festival. We heard from Eric Schmidt, the former Google CEO, earlier on in the day. And he said that it's going to be a huge problem for the 2024 elections, that generative AI and misinformation is basically a mess. And he, he is worried about it, as many other people are here. And this is just the first that we're going to be talking about this in the lead up, Kelly. I, I don't even know if it's worth me asking this question, but was there anything else uh, that people were kind of talking? Or is it really just AI, full stop, you know, everything about it? <laughs> At the Aspen Ideas Fest, I mean, this is filled with policymakers, with academics, with business leaders. So obviously there's a lot of conversations about all different things, social issues, um, technology. But, you know, AI sort of has been this underlying thread. Even if you see a panel with Rain Wilson, he's talking about the impact of mm. AI on the creative industry. Uh, so it really is pretty pervasive here. And it's amazing to think, Kelly, that, you know, just seven months ago right. we were talking about this. That's when ChatGBT exploded onto the scene. And now, you know, it's one of the themes of the Aspen Ideas Festival is generative AI, but specifically harnessing the benefits. So here's a place where we can talk about the risks and the benefits, whereas a place like San Francisco, Kelly, where I am all the time, there is sort of this desire to only talk about the benefits sure. and opportunities because there's so many technologists that don't want this to be stifled. No, I think that's a great point. And I, you, you can imagine the bookers. You know, what, Did they have a plan A and then go scratch that? You know, I always think about it from their, that point of view, but they have yeah. a great lineup. Deirdre, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Deirdre thanks, Bosa. Still ahead, we're in the final trading days of the first half of the year. We'll get Nuveen's back half playbook, see what will drive the S&P towards their year-end target of 4,700. We're at 4,377, up a percent today. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks having an incredibly strong first half of the year, especially tech seeing the biggest gains. The Dow up 2%, the, which isn't, I mean, it's not that great. It's better than expected. The S&P up 12%, but the NASDAQ, get this, up 27% since Jan 1. And my next guest sees more gains in the back half with one of the highest S&P price targets on the street at 4700 That's 8% more upside from here. She also expects a couple more rate hikes by year-end thanks to inflation. Joining us now with How to Position, Nuveen CIO Sarah Malik. It's great to see you again, Sarah. I didn't realize Kelly, you guys nice had you. such a high, uh, and you've had that high price target all year, right? Yeah, we came out with that price target in our Barron's Outlook in December 2022 for year in 23. We had been more concerned about an early in the year recession that may clear the decks, but really what we're seeing now is a delayed recession, and investors are in wait and see mode for the last couple of weeks as they're worried about three flat factors, which is inflation, central bank movements, and the economy. Um, and I think there's an opportunity cost of keeping money in cash when you can earn greater returns, even still now in areas such as high quality, high yield on the fixed income side, real assets such as infrastructure and a balanced portfolio, not only for tech stocks, which have more tailwinds than just artificial intelligence, but dividend growers, which look cheap to us as they've been out of favor. It, you know, if, if you had told people back in December and you tried to, uh, which was basically, you know, hey, if we're going to have a recession, we get a rebound 4,700. And now I guess if we don't, we could get to 47. Like it, it's just a strange mix of events where it's it seems like everywhere you look, it points to to up. And I just don't know how long that's sustainable. Yeah, I mean, this is the most talked about recession that so far hasn't happened. And you know, everybody had been expecting it and waiting on the sidelines. Now what we're looking at is probably one to two more rate hikes and then a Fed pause. If you look at history, equities and fixed income tend to outperform when the Fed pauses. And with the delayed recession and consumer and employment markets remaining strong, 
Yes, they are showing some cracks, but not enough to put us into a recession this year. I think these tailwinds of moderating inflation, artificial intelligence, which people weren't really talking as much about late last year, will continue to be strong for the markets. And that's why there's likely more upside from here um, as we get into Q2 earnings. Also, we'll be watching for companies and how much they can maintain price versus lowering price to take, mar to take market share. But with moderating inflation, that might also be helpful to their margins. What do you do with tech, right? Is it a case of, you know, lean into the strength, go with it? Or are you, you know, looking elsewhere? Or does it just not matter? Is this just a case of the S&P will kind of protect you no matter what? If you look at the technicals, when the Nasdaq is up this strongly in the first half of the year, uh, the majority of the time it will be continue to be strong in the second half, but not to this degree. Beyond just artificial intelligence, which was a huge tailwind for tech earlier this year, there's also other tailwinds for tech, such as moderating inflation is positive for long-duration stocks. Uh, it's lower yields will also be positive for technology. And if the economy slows but doesn't go into a recession, we're going to be looking to own those companies that are less dependent on economic growth. That is all positive for tech. So it does put them in the sweet spot. And if you look at tech valuations, I agree they're not cheap, but they have a lot of positives going for them. But then beyond tech, a lot of other areas really haven't caught up. Um, so I think there's other areas in the market that look cheap. We saw transports catching up. Uh, as the market starts to believe that economic growth is going to remain fairly stable. What about the banks where you've got a couple of specific ones here? We've been talking kind of more generally, but Morgan Stanley and ING are on this list. Why? So generally, we've been negative on the banks for quite a long time now, and that's because we think that beyond the mini banking crisis that we saw, higher capital requirements for the banks, more competition for deposits and more regulations. So we're sticking to high quality banks that are in well-diversified businesses, such as Morgan Stanley and ING, which over in Europe has had less issues in the banking system than the U.S. had, but overall not positive on the sector. Um, and just going back to our 4,700 pipe price target, what we'd really like to see in order for the markets to get to that, to that level is broader participation beyond technology. So we're happy to see when small caps start to play catch-up, when we see transports starting to hit new highs, all of that is positive because we want more market participation for the markets to keep climbing higher. Yeah, and it just makes me laugh because we've been talking so much about one versus the other. Is it big tech or is it small caps? And today the Nasdaq and the Russell are both up one and a half percent. Yeah, and I think that's positive for the markets overall. Yeah, definitely a sign of broad strength. Sarah, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Sarah Malik with Nuveen. All right, that does it for us, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.